credit scores, down payments, interest rates. Car buying can be a numbers game, but you don't have to be a math expert to get the keys to your dream car. Just use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. Crunch your numbers and get personalized results so you know exactly how much you'll pay each month for your car. It's like having a magic wand for your wallet. Presto! The car you've been wanting is now within reach. So hit the road and leave your calculator at home. Auto Trader. It's been almost 3,000 years and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. Jerry's here, kind of. I think she went to go open the door for a delivery person. Other than that, this is stuff you should know. Hey, let's hope it's not the land shark <laughs> from Graham. the 19, 1970s Saturday Night Live fame. That's good stuff, man. Uh, hey, you know what? I would need to shout out a listener because this was a genuine listener suggestion. Oh. Uh, we get lots of suggestions, and sometimes we take them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I got I have one in the pipeline right now. Oh yeah? Yeah, I'm 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 just gonna let it be suspenseful until then. Oh, okay. Whose idea uh, was I'm this? I'm trying to think of which one it might be for you because I know what's in your pipeline, buddy. Okay. <laughs> we already did the peek. enemas one. <laughs> I can peek through that scary <laughs> that scary hole. Uh this is uh Jamie Booher. Nice name. And I didn't even let Jamie know, so hopefully Jamie hears this, and it'll just be a big surprise. Yeah. Uh, I know there's a certain listener out there who is hoping this would be possums, but <laughs> uh, here's a little hint. If you suggest something too much, it becomes a game where we will never do it. <laughs> well, you can ask the guy who um, continuously asked for the Hawaiian overthrow episode. It's one of those but things we kind of did that, didn't we? We no. did do it, and it's one of those oh, things okay. that you want really bad, and then when you get it, you regret ever having asked for it. Yeah. Just too much buildup. Right. You just got to let things come as they come. Exactly. Chill out. Mm-hmm. Look in your pipeline. I predict that we... For guidance? We normally would have gotten to possums by 2027 easily. Never now. Never. Right. Now we won't. <laughs> but today we're talking about pearls, right? Yeah, pearls. And uh, big thanks to Jamie Booher because this is one... I'm surprised we hadn't done it. It's very Stuff You Should know mm-hmm. Just sort of sitting out there at the bottom of the ocean waiting for us to discover it like a pearl diver, which Man. weirdly was not even in this article. No, I thought it was weird, too. I did a little um, research on it, so we'll we'll hit that in a minute. But Yeah, same. Yeah. I, I read that Steinbeck book. <laughs> what was it called? The Pearl Diver's Daughter? The, the <laughs> <laughs> That was the original title, but okay. he just shortened it. And he just said, let's just call it The Pearl. Oh, okay. I didn't know that was a Steinbeck book. I knew about Grapes of Wrath. Mm-hmm. As I lay dying, mainly because that metal band. Mm-hmm. Travels with Charlie. Uh, of yeah. Mice and Men. What's the Cannery Row one? Cannery Row of okay. Mice and Men. Of yeah. Mice and Men, man. Have you ever seen that um, with uh, the, 
The, Which one? The one with Gary Sinise and um, John Malkovich as Lenny? No, I saw the previous version when I was a kid that mm-hmm. uh, I want to say it was the Quaid, uh, the big boy Quaid. Oh, he'd be perfect for that. Randy. Um, and I can't remember who Lenny was. I think I saw pieces of oh, the I thought you meant- of the of the the Malkovich one. Okay, I thought you meant Randy Quaid was Lenny. I can't imagine him as anybody else. Maybe Curly, but no, I think Curly's kind of like a Casey Samasco esque smaller dude. You know what I mean? <laughs> Wait, who did I say? Did I get it wrong? Who did I say Randy Quaid was? You said you couldn't remember who Lenny was. I don't remember the other guy's name, but Lenny's the one who Squiggy. gets old Yellard at the end. <laughs> right. I guess I should say spoiler alert, right? Uh, Sure, but if you don't know what that is, just he's Cousin Eddie. That's all you need to know. So, Chuck, let's start talking about pearls at this point. What do you think? I think let's do it. Pretty neat little gem. Yeah, you can make a really good argument, and I've seen it made all over the internet, especially from pearl sellers' websites, that pearls are far and away the oldest gem people have ever used to adorn themselves with. I don't know if that's true, but it's possible because you have to mine gold. You have to stumble upon it. With pearls, I could see people just, you know, diving for seafood and being like, what is this thing? And, oh, there's another one over here. And and then all of a sudden you've got, you know, these gems that are coming out of the Persian Gulf and and being a a big deal. Yeah, and, you know, it was already weird enough that people cracked an oyster open and Mm -hmm. said, maybe I should eat that disgusting-looking blob. Hmm. Uh, I know that's kind of an age-old question. It's like, who who ate their first oyster? But uh, when they saw a little pearl in there, I mean, first of all, the in- interior of any, or not any, but of many mollusk shells can be beautifully iridescent and uh, very attractive to the eye. So I could see why somebody might crack a mollusk open and just say, hey, this looks interesting. wonder if that piece of meat is tastes good. Yeah. And it does, then, especially in a nice oh, yeah. buttery lemon white wine sauce. Mm, I think we should do oysters just separately at some point. Okay. Uh, but I found a little pearl. Turns out it was a blister pearl, which means it was, we'll get to this, but it means it's attached to the shell. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I found a little blister pearl one time. And I can't remember if it was just dining in a restaurant or whether it was from a shell when we were like clamming or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I thought pearls only came from oysters, and that is not true. They can come from just about any mollusk. Right, but you you do make a good point. Any mollusk can make a pearl if you if you're very inclusive of what forms a pearl, because they're formed through the same process. Is the difference between a true pearl and a non-true pearl, if you're going to be mm-hmm. a purist, is the substance that it's made from, and. Even more mind-boggling than that, they're made from the same substance. It's just a different structural arrangement of that same substance that produces a true pearl or a non-true pearl. I think that was enough mystery. Let's let's get in. Okay, so one of the things that we need to know about pearls and one of the reasons why they've been, you know, for thousands of years, they were like the great signifier of wealth is because yeah. they're exceedingly rare in nature, just kind of globally you'll find uh, a pearl in about 1 in 10,000 mollusks. That's not very many pearls hanging around out there. So you can imagine that when a really nice pearl was found, it was, you know, very much treasured. Um, And every single pearl, no matter what kind of pearl it is, starts because the little mollusk that forms the pearl is irritated. 
That's right. Uh, you've often heard, you know, a, a grain of sand can turn into a pearl. Mm-hmm. That is true. Uh, it can be a little chunk of the shell. Um, most times it's a little parasite. And it's almost like an allergic reaction takes place yeah. inside the mollusk in that they mount a defense uh, by coating this foreign thing that gets in their shell. Because, you know, their shell is is ideally sealed up pretty tight. Uh, and they keep, like to keep it nice and clean. Mm-hmm. Um but they, they, something gets in there and they go, all right, something's in here, shouldn't be. I'm going to coat this thing uh, with a substance and we'll get to what that is in a second. Oh. And that substance basically just <laughs> builds up and eventually it makes a pearl. And it, you know, it can be a, a little blister pearl that's still attached. Or, mm-hmm. you know, ideally what you're going to get to is a, a perfectly spherical, lovely little thing that could someday end up. Uh, on a piece of jewelry. Yeah. Now we should say like that one in ten thousand mollusks. Like if you if you get ten thousand mollusks together on the beach, you would find mm-hmm. a pearl in one of them. Um, it would be even rarer than that to find a perfectly spherical or even close to spherical yeah. pearl. Like those are really really rare in nature, right? Sure. Um, but that stuff that makes that pearl, depending on what kind of mollusk it comes from, if it's a true pearl, the stuff that they build up to kind of isolate that grain of sand or that parasite or whatever is called nacre. And nacre is this combination of um, a ki- kind of calcium carbonate called aragonite. And then another substance, kind of like an organic binder, called the uh, conchliolin. And as different layers are put down, add a little <laughs> bit of water, slowly by, but, but surely, like, the, the layer kind of gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and a pearl mm-hmm. forms around that. Again, you have to remember, this, this thing that we prize and value and think is one of the most beautiful things in the world is a pearl's, like you said, an allergic reaction to a, an irritant. That's what it's doing. It just so happens that we find them gorgeous and like to wear them on our foreheads. <laughs> foreheads? That's a good, sure. great place for a pearl. Uh, how'd you pronounce that second word? N- nacre? Or, oh, conchiolian. Conch- yeah, you're throwing that L in there. Oh. It's very easy to want to do. Conchiolian. I get, I get the urge. Yeah, conchiolian. Uh, and nacre, by the way, is spelled N A C R E. Great word. Uh, for those of you who love it when I just randomly spell things. <laughs> Um, and nacre, you know, I talked about that beautiful iridescence. Um, it's it's mother of pearl. That is nacre. So when you look at the inside of a of a mollusk of mm-hmm. a shellfish that has that wonderful sort of rainbowy iridescent look, that is the nacre, and it's really super strong. Um, and I, I believe it even, you know, it's it's part of the structural integrity of keeping the mollusks strong, right? Right. Yeah. It's like that's um, what what we would consider like what our bones are made out of. That's what the mollusks. You know, hardness is made out of, I think. Yeah, exactly. At least the interior part. So then there's the other non-true pearls. They're called non-nacreous pearls because they're not made with nacre. They're made with a calcareous concretion, which again is made from calcium carbonate crystals, but it's a different arrangement of calcium carbonate called a calcite. And calcite is more stable than aragonite, but it, it's more fragile, and it's just not the same thing as a pearl. Yeah, these are uh, the non-nacreous are um, sometimes pink or brown, uh, and they generally come from the queen conch. We say conch, right? Or Mm -hmm. we say conch? Conch. That's what I always said, but I also heard people say conch one time, and I thought I was mispronouncing it. No, they were were dead wrong. Okay. (laughs) Uh, And this uh, conch mollusk, uh, the queen conch is in the Caribbean, 
Or is it Caribbean? Because <laughs> I heard someone say it once. It's the Caribbean. Yeah, you have to say it like you're about to sing the Billy Ocean song. Yeah, Queen. Yeah, but you um, can't say Queen. Well, <laughs> you have to just leave everybody hanging. <laughs> well, you've never noticed in that song. He goes, Caribbean Queen, conk, in the background. <laughs> right. Uh <laughs> I do want to recommend this story that we're not going to get into here, but uh, Olivia, who helped us with this, was kind enough to tease us uh, with a story from 2021 about a Thai fisherman who found a mellow pearl, M-E-L-O, and that's um, one of the other kinds of non-nacreous mollusk pearls. And it was worth about 300 grand. These things are really, really rare. They're, uh, you can't make them in nature, so that's why they're rare. And we'll get to, or you can't make them, you know, by human hand, I should say. Yeah. Uh, So they're super rare and they're very um, fragile. uh, And as a result, they're really expensive. But there's a really good story about this Thai fisherman who found one worth a lot of money and just go look it up on the internet and read about it. But it's (laughs) it's pretty involved. So so like you said, the non-nacreous pearls are made by the mellow mellow sea snail or the queen conch mollusk. But the true pearls are typically made by saltwater oysters or freshwater mussels. Like when you're thinking of a pearl pearl, it probably came from a mussel, possibly from Ohio or Tennessee of all places. (laughs) Yeah, the Tennessee River. That was one of the most mind-blowing things I've ever heard. Uh, or if it's saltwater oysters, it might be on the um, the northern coast of South America. It might be on the in the uh, Baja, the Gulf of uh, California, off the Baja in Mexico. Um, those are some really good spots for it too. Or it could also be in places in Japan, as we'll see too. Yeah, and the Tennessee River and a couple of the, these other places are some of the some of the only places where people still dive for pearls. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, again, as you'll see, most pearls that we see today are made by uh, people. Uh, well, people and uh, mollusks. Sure. In, in conjunction. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we can talk a, just for a little bit about pearl diving. That was how they used to find pearls. And if you think, well, I get oysters, you know, I live in, I live near the ocean and I get oysters just in my oyster trap a few feet down. Sure. Those are almost certainly not going to be making pearls. The pearl-bearing mollusks are generally very, very, very deep. And these divers, it was kind of the, I don't know if it was the the reason people started free diving so deep, mm-hmm. but people who were really good at free diving so deep uh, often became pearl divers. And, you know, free diving are the people that uh, eventually they would get a mask, but they would, you know, you just go down there with your lungs mm-hmm. and swim super, super, super deep. Yeah. Uh, and that's what the Steinbeck novel is about. So, so like, I saw that a, a pearl diver might dive down to 120 feet, 150 feet. That's deep. Yeah, that's like 50 meters if you're paying attention. Um, that is extremely deep. That's actually beyond, like, the recreational scuba diver's limits. Mm-hmm. I think that's like 90 or 100 feet. So these people are free diving that deep. And, yeah, they're having to hold their breath for many, many minutes. But they're pretty good at it. And the reason why I think they have to dive so low and the reason why you're not going to find a pearl in an oyster along the um, the shoreline is because the, the, the flow of water has to be below a certain speed mm-hmm. or else the nacre is just not going to form correctly or at all from what I can tell. So they got to be just sitting real still? Yeah, exactly. For sure. Should we take a break? Sure. We'll take a break and we'll come back and talk a little history because it turns out people have liked pearls for a really long time. Stop you, shadow. 
Who hasn't heard names like Achilles or Odysseus, Cassandra, Medusa? But how much do you know about them from the ancient world? Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is the podcast bringing the ancient sources to life. Greek myth and history is timeless, and unless you've been living under a rock, you have seen just how true that is today. But there is so much more to these characters and stories than what pop culture can do justice. I'm Liv Albert, the host of Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, and every week I bring you stories from the ancient world, both mythological and historical, to breathe new life into these thousands of years old stories. I'm also regularly joined by some of the most brilliant names in the field of archaeology and ancient history, authors of your favorite retellings from today, and everyone in between. Join me as I dive into the wild world of the ancient Greeks and their stories. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, Chuck, we're back, and we're talking pearl history. And um, from what I could tell, for about 4,000 years, the um, vast majority of pearls came from around the Persian Gulf, the Red mm-hmm. Sea, or the Gulf of Manar by Sri Lanka. And that was just the way it was. If you had a pearl uh, before about the 1920s or 30s, it was very likely that it came from one of those areas in, in about the Middle East or Southeast Asia. Yeah, and they were, like you said, they were always prized. Um, obviously, if you look at a pearl, um, it, it's a anytime something really that beautiful comes from nature that's that rare, mm-hmm. um, it becomes a precious item. And from the very beginning and... I mean, you name it. In most ancient places where you could get pearls, they were written about. They were uh, prized and worn by the nobility, uh, maybe nobility, definitely kings and queens, maybe sometimes only kings and queens, Mm -hmm. and not even like lower nobility. They were that rare. Uh, But they also kind of (laughs) hoarded them. Like there are stories of, you know, uh, ancient queens having like hundreds and hundreds of pearls. Mm Uh, It's not like they just had like, oh, we found one and the rest, you know, other people can wear. Yeah, I think the oldest pearl necklace that was found is comes comes from about 2400 years ago or 2300 years ago in a place that was called Susa, which we now recognize as Iran. And it was uh, in a princess's sarcophagus. And it was a pearl necklace of 216 pearls. It's a lot of pearls. It is a lot of pearls, especially considering, again, like just any normal pearl is found in one in 10,000 mollusks. And this this princess had 216 pearls. So she would have been what you would call fabulously wealthy at the time. (laughs) Uh, Native American cultures prized the pearl as well. Uh, As you'll see, if you can find them in the Tennessee River, uh, then you can— uh, there are other places in the Midwest of the United States where you can find pearls still today. Mm-hmm. So they love them and use them. I think mother of pearl has always been used. Uh, the ancient Egyptians definitely used it as far as 4200 BCE, Right. Uh, even though they got pearls uh, much later. Yeah, apparently it wasn't until they were conquered by the Persian Empire about the 6th yeah, century BCE. Um, that they finally got pearls, which does not make sense to me, but, you know, them's the breaks, history. <laughs> uh, this Cleopatra story is pretty interesting. I think we uh, talked about this in our Cleopatra really? episode. I'm pretty sure. It sounds awfully familiar. It did. Uh, as the legend goes, she bet Mark Antony that she could present the most expensive dinner ever made. And he was like, all right, let's see what you got. Uh, I think there's a catch, and there was a catch. Uh, because supposedly uh, pearl earrings were crushed into powder and dissolved into wine, and she went, game on, <laughs> yeah, M.A. She, she famously went, wah, wah, and then downed her pearl shot of vinegar. Yeah, and supposedly he said, no, thank you. No, that's too opulent for moi. Yeah, I can't, I don't know if that would be bad for you or probably just benign? Well, it depends because there's a lot of cultures over the years, as we'll see, that have basically prized pearls for all sorts of medicinal values along the way. Like uh, everybody from the Hindus to the Taoists to um, ancient Sanskrit medical texts like the Chakra Samhita all basically said, hey, pearls are really good for everything from prolonging youth to curing weak eyes. It's an elixir to restore strength. Like, I think anytime there's something that is 
valuable as a thing of beauty. They also just assume that it has some sort of uh, healthful right. properties as well. And pearls are definitely in that in that um, realm. I'm curious if there's anything to any of that. If there's been like modern studies on pearl dust. I, well, I know they put pearl dust in some skin creams too, and it supposedly adds a youthful glow to your skin. But that smacks to me of basically the same thing as Sanskrit medical texts saying it restores strength and youthfulness. And you know that because you use it, right? Uh, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> it's still worth a try. Um, once the Crusades got going uh, in the medieval era, mm-hmm. they started trading with Asia. All these pearls were coming to Europe. Mm-hmm. And again, and once they made their way to Europe, they were uh, basically off limits. Uh, there were actually sumptuary laws that said you can't have them, common people. You can't have anything nice. Yeah. That's what all these laws are about. Yeah, supposedly it was to to really keep the um, class delineations in order, but also sure. supposedly to prevent the lower classes from uh, engaging in, in wanton spending that they couldn't afford, you know, in a, like a form of vice, like luxury, basically. Um, the thing is that— Now we have credit cards. <laughs> right, right. It's the opposite of a sumptuary law. Um, the thing is, apparently, Scotland has really nice pearls. And I saw in more than one place that the, the story goes that Caesar actually invaded Britain because he was after um, UK pearls at the time, although it wasn't the UK. Oh, really? You know what I'm saying. <laughs> we still get those emails all the time. <laughs> For sure. We could, like, if you put a gun to our head, we could come up with it. But just sometimes on the fly, it's hard to remember. Well, and sometimes when we say, English or England, we're talking about England. I think the official, right, right. But yeah, exactly. But I think the official thing is the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. I think I can hear some people in Europe clapping right now. (laughs) Uh, Well, speaking of them, uh, the colonizers, of course, once they started making their way around the world and plundering everything, they uh, obviously took wherever there were pearls, they would take and harvest those pearls. And send them back to Europe again, uh, whether it was Panama or Mexico or places in South America, wherever they went and they had pearls, they were for the, right for the taken. And, and again, they went back to the court generally. Um, men wore pearl earrings apparently in Henry's court. Um, Elizabeth had thousands and thousands of pearls uh-huh. that were, you know, hey, a pearl button looks much nicer than uh, a real button or just a pearl adornment. And so let's just use those <laughs> instead of regular buttons. Yeah, one thing that I found mind-blowing was that um, the, that her gowns would have thousands of pearls sewn into them and that when you clean the gown, you had to you had to take all the pearls off and then clean it and then sew all the pearls back on too. Can you imagine? You know what? I bet if you told that story back then and Elizabeth was in the room, she would say, Really? They do that? <laughs> <laughs> right, probably. And by the way, off with your head. Right. <laughs> for, for telling me that story. <laughs> right. I don't like guilt. <laughs> Man, that was a great Elizabeth the first impression. Thank you. So onward and upward, Chuck, because in uh, the late, late 19th century, in 1896 in particular, a guy named Gaston Vives became the first human being, as far as we know, to set up a genuine, large-scale commercial oyster farming operation with the express purpose of producing as many pearls as possible. Pretty good idea in 1896. It is, and because the, the, you know, the 
the um, what's the word I'm looking for where something happens and like in ratio form. Um, the <laughs> be, well, in how about okay? I know where you're going. How about this? Um, the because pearls are so rare, mm-hmm. <laughs> Vives said, "I'm going to overcome this by just having gobs and gobs and gobs of oysters, um, so that just I'll beat the odds." And in fact, he beat the odds big time because he was farming oysters and harvesting anywhere between four to 14 pearls per 100 oysters. So he was having a four to 14 percent yield of, of pearls. Pretty good, right? Well, I mean, way better than what we said to begin with, which is one in 10,000. Right, which is, so he was harvesting up to 14 percent of pearls, uh, or harvesting pearls from 14 percent of his oysters. The worldwide estimate would be harvesting pearls from 0.0001 percent of oysters that you would find. Yeah, and uh, I don't think we said this was in Mexico. And, of course, these are uh, reports that this happened, and 14% is the very highest end. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was 4 to 14, but that's let's say it's 4%. That's still a lot more. And the only thing that people can reckon is that it was just a place where uh, they had a lot more pearls because that can happen. Yeah, the conditions must have just been just perfect right there in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, that yeah, so good for Gaston Vives. But one really important thing to remember about Vives's operation is he was farming them naturally. Again, he was overcoming the odds just by sheer numbers of oysters he was raising. But he mm-hmm. also figured out some really important stuff too. That the better you take care of your oysters, mm-hmm. the more you protect them from predators, the more you protect them from disease, the more you scrub them free of barnacles several times a year, the likelier they are to produce a really nice pearl. Uh, and so he established some techniques that I believe are still kind of foundational in pearl culturing today. But he did not try to artificially implant or or get, um, I guess, jumpstart pearl creation in oysters. He was just letting it happen naturally. So he wasn't technically culturing pearls. He was just right. farming oysters for their pearls. Yeah. Cultivating, right? Col- I'd say culturing. No, I mean— he would have been cultivating. Oh, sure, sure. Grooming, breeding, um, <laughs> raising. Uh-huh. Beating the odds. Sure. Uh, if you want to talk about making pearls, culturing pearls, uh, of course, you got to look to ancient China. Uh, they're the first people that kind of started doing that. They put little molds. This is very cool. They put little molds uh, that had different things, but uh, chiefly little Buddha images mm-hmm. into mussels, freshwater mussels, around 500 CE, and they would develop those blister pearls that I talked about that I found one time that are attached <laughs> to the interior of the shell, and it would be in about the same shape. I don't, it's not like it produced a perfect little uh, Buddha blister pearl, uh-huh. but looked enough like it to where it was uh, – you know, a pretty ingenious thing. Um, <laughs> right. They were not, they were, you know, I think the blister pearls are called like half pearls or hemispherical. They're not obviously prized and the kind that you want to put on a necklace, but it kind of got the ball rolling as far as uh, knowing that we can culture pearls. Right. They would say it either looks like Buddha or Abraham Lincoln, guaranteed. <laughs> So a long time after that, um, people started, like, really trying to figure out how to intensively cultivate pearls or culture pearls. Now I'm confused, but um, there was a guy named William Seville Kent who was English, believe it or not, and he was a marine (laughs) biologist working in Australia. um, And he said, you know, I really think this Gaston Vives guy is is onto something. Um, 
But I think he's he's missing the point. He's just kind of letting nature uh, take its course, beating the odds, you could say. <laughs> um, and instead, Seville Kent wanted to kind of like hasten nature to kind of like increase his chances even further by trying to figure out how to make pearls happen uh, unnaturally, I guess. And he never got any further than creating blister pearls, which from what I can tell is the easiest pearl you could possibly make. And he died in 1908, and it just he just never cracked that code. But shortly after that, uh, in another part of the world, in Japan, uh, there were some guys who'd been working on this independently, and they did crack that code finally. They did, and we should mention the reason that they wanted to speed up uh, the pearlness of the world was not only just to obviously make more money if they could control something like that, mm-hmm. but in Australia and in Japan, uh, they were um, these mollusks were overfished at the time, which oh, yeah. meant obviously they were underpearled. And so they kind of had like there was a need created for pearls that wasn't being met. So all of a sudden they started saying, hey, we can if we can make a blister pearl, maybe we can carry this over and make regular real pearls. Right. And in Japan, there's the Okoya (laughs) Okoya oyster. Mm -hmm. It's hard to say fast. Mm -hmm. And uh, abalone, which is like a big, very expensive kind of seafood. It's a sea snail. Oh, is it? And Huh? It is? Yeah, abalone. Yeah, I didn't know that. What did you think it was? I thought it was more clam-like than snail-like. That was my guess. Well, it's called a sea snail, but it, it looks like a clam. Oh, okay. There you go. It's one of those things. Sort of like a, oh, never mind. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know. You have to text it to me. Oh, that's okay. Well, yeah, I'll text it to you. Okay. Um, so these two things, the Okoya oyster and the abalone uh, in Japan and the waters around Japan had very... Um, nice natural pearls being produced. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, underpearled because of overfishing. And in 1888, there was an oyster farmer uh, who figures very highly in the story name. Uh, and this gets a little confusing because a lot of the names are similar. Really? Uh, but his name was uh, Kokichi Mikimoto. And he started working with a professor named Kachiki. Is that right? Kakichi. Kakichi. Uh, Mitsukuri, mm-hmm. uh, and he was from Tokyo Imperial University, and they started working together trying to get a, a technique going for initially growing these blistered pearls, and they were successful in that not only could they get that going, but they could actually industrialize it and make it like a really ramp up the process and, and get a lot of them going. Yeah, Mickey Moto's uh, aim for, for starting to cultivate pearls was because he wanted to democratize pearls. He wanted anybody at the time to be able to wear a pearl necklace. And that's why he was, you know, he set about trying to figure this out. And again, like you said, the best they could come up with were blister pearls. And they call them half pearls for a reason, because you have to break them off of the shell, the inner shell. Yeah. And so you've ruined one side of it. Whereas a true pearl... Um, will form inside the the oyster and can just be kind of plucked out rather easily, and it's it's a whole f- it's a whole pearl that's not attached to the shell. So it, it seems like it, if you could make a blister pearl, you could make a true pearl, and it just was not that easy. Um, and neither Mikimoto nor Mitsukuri ever figured it out really. It was actually a student of Mitsukuri's, a guy named Tokichi Nishikawa, who um, actually came up with the the way to create a genuine pearl through cultivation practices. And the same process is essentially um, used today. Yeah, it's basically what they did was they said, hey, let's take what nature does. And that's like what we have to sit around and wait every 10,000 mollusks to see. Mm -hmm. 
uh, happen. And let's, let's just do it ourselves. Let's figure out a way to speed it up and do it by hand. And they did. They would cut out that, you know, we talked about the nacre. Mm-hmm. They would cut out the part of the oyster, which is the mantle that secretes that nacre. Mm-hmm. They would artificially put in a little bit of shell mm-hmm. uh, instead of like a grain of sand. They would use, I think they found the a little like round cutting of that iridescent shell works best, right? I think they found that muscle shells work best for some reason. But yeah, they would make them round or spherical. Right. And then they would put that it back into another oyster. Right. Uh, I think of the same uh, variety. I don't think they mix and matched. And that would basically cause that process to start. They would say, something's in me that shouldn't be in me. And it would create a little pearl sack. Right. Uh, it has that little seed in the middle. And it started just coating it with that uh, substance. Yeah. And so they would surgically implant shell pieces and like a piece of mantle from another oyster, which is kind of Mengele-esque if you think about it. And they would use little tiny modified dental tools to create this surgery. Um, And it was really hard to do because you can't open an oyster shell more than two to three centimeters, which is not much. Or else it's it's either going to kill the um, the oyster or it's going to upset it so much that it's going to reject this this implanted nucleus, the seed for the pearl. So it's really hard to do. And again, this is still the way that they do this. And it turns out, strangely, there was an entirely other guy uh, named um, Tatsui Mise, who was a carpenter. And he was working on his own version of the exact same thing, apparently independently, at the same time in Japan. And he uh, and Nishikawa went to go patent their methods, found that the other one had applied for a patent for the exact same thing and came to an agreement, which I think is really sweet because had it been like Thomas Edison or somebody, there would have been like legal battles and murders of elephants and all that stuff. These guys just came to an agreement to call this process the Mise Nishikawa method. Right. Uh, Some people say that um, we talked about Seville Kent who died without having uh, perfected the non-blistered process. Mm -hmm. Uh, some accounts do say that both of these people, which is you know basically how they were working independently on the same process, got their process from notes from Sibyl Kent, but I don't think that's been like proven out, so who knows? It's just part of the lore. Well, yeah, at this point. I mean, plus Seville Kent never cracked the blister the blister pearl barrier. Yeah. <laughs> the old the old BPP. Right, yeah. <laughs> or BPB? BPB. The blister pearl barrier. Yeah, the BPB. So Mickey Moto, who, uh, just as a refresher, was that original oyster farmer mm-hmm. uh, in 1888, was a really good uh, promoter, really good marketer, um, had a, a pretty good operation going. In fact, they still, uh, the company is still around today and they still make pearl jewelry. Sure. Uh, but they would build these big pearl structures at displays, at expo shows. And he would go around and talk to like governments and say, hey, this jewelry is like, I know we're making them by hand, but it's still like a real pearl. Right. Like, look at these things. Yeah. And sort of had to overcome the uh, these aren't true pearls argument. Yeah, the diamondique challenge. Yeah. But he did overcome it. The thing is, is they're just not as valuable, not because they're not real pearls. They are real pearls that are made from the same stuff and everything. It's just that humans have intervened and taken happenstance out of the out of the process, right? The reason that they're not as expensive is because there's so many of them. You can produce them so much more easily. And so uh, Mikimoto actually did what he set out to accomplish. He democratized yeah. pearls. And now you can get a, a strand of pearl 
like a pearl necklace for like a hundred bucks if you want. And they're beautiful, gorgeous pearls that if somebody came up and said, which one's the natural pearl and which one's the cultivated pearl, uh, you would not be able to tell. No, not at all. Uh, they were brought over to America in at a really bad time, just before the Great Depression hit <laughs> right. in 1928. But uh, they hung around, and then after the Great Depression, um, people started buying pearls and pearl necklaces. And another thing that happened was they started making just straight-up imitation pearls. Mm-hmm. And these look great, too. And Jackie Kennedy's uh, very famous pearl necklace was not real. It was a gift from her mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were artificial pearls. Uh, I think a lot of times the pearl necklaces that you see um, can be artificial. And uh, they sell like hotcakes, too. Yeah, I looked it up. I could not find for certain what uh, Jackie Kennedy's um, pearls were made of. But the closest I saw was a guess at glass, that they were made of glass, everybody. Yeah, there's been apparently all kinds of things. Glass, alabaster. Uh And then they would put everything from egg white to fish scales to snail slime uh, to create that. You know, pearl has a certain look. It's not just like a plastic one looks plastic. Right. For a reason, but a good artificial pearl has a little magic to it as well. Yeah, opalescence. Should we take a break? I think so. All right, we'll take our last break and we'll come back and finish up with uh, what's going on today in the world of pearls. Who hasn't heard names like Achilles or Odysseus, Cassandra, Medusa? But how much do you know about them from the ancient world? Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is the podcast bringing the ancient sources to life. Greek myth and history is timeless, and unless you've been living under a rock, you have seen just how true that is today. But there is so much more to these characters and stories than what pop culture can do justice. I'm Liv Albert, the host of Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, and every week I bring you stories from the ancient world, both mythological and historical, to breathe new life into these thousands of years old stories. I'm also regularly joined by some of the most brilliant names in the field of archaeology and ancient history, authors of your favorite retellings from today, and everyone in between. Join me as I dive into the wild world of the ancient Greeks and their stories. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. 
that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Uh, we're in modern times now, and <laughs> things are still about the same. Uh, about 90% of the pearls, uh, like genuine pearls that you're going to get, are cultured. Uh, it is – if you say I want a pearl necklace and I want it to be only pearls found from uh, – that are natural pearls, then you got a lot of money laying around and you're pretty picky. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's – Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> be- but you can thank Mikimoto for not having to have to have a lot of money laying around or to be particularly picky. Um, and those, there's a bunch of types of um, cultured pearls. Uh, there's Akoya, South Sea, Tahitian, and Freshwater. And depending on the type of mollusk that's used, it's going to produce different colored gems, basically. Because I don't know if we said or not, a pearl is considered a gem, even though it's not um, like a, a mineral in the sense that like a diamond is. But it's still it still has a crystalline structure. So I guess it's considered a gem. Plus, people just like to wear them on their foreheads, as I said. But if you want a black pearl, you're going to have to go down to Tahiti and get one uh, from the Black Lip Oyster, which is just all around cool. Yeah, they are cool. And they're not necessarily all black. They can be gray. They can be brown. They can be black. But they'll also also have um, like kind of iridescent hints of like greens or purples, even pink I saw. Oh, pink pearls? Well, pink black pearls, which is mind blowing. Yeah. Uh, if you if you're talking about just sort of the standard traditional classic pearl, uh, they are produced in Japan and China, and those are those original cultured Akoya pearls still mm-hmm. to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I guess you know the freshwater pearls; those are the ones that come from the Tennessee River, among other places. Uh, freshwater mussels produce them. They are. Um, not as expensive. They come in all kinds of shapes and sizes mm-hmm. uh, from lakes and ponds and, I guess, rivers, if it's the Tennessee River. Sure. 
And uh, there are also little things called like rice pearls that look like what you would think, look like little grains of rice. Um, they tried to perfect the process of getting them less rice-like over the years and found that if they just switched the species of mussel, then they could do that, and it worked. Yes, and uh, here's a little tip for you. If you want to impress everyone at the country club you obviously belong to, um, next time you see somebody wearing pearls that are not spherical, tell them you love their Baroque pearls because a Baroque <laughs> pearl is anything but a round-shaped pearl. Yeah, if you look up Baroque pearl necklace, it looks almost like a necklace of molars. Yeah, weirdly they do, um, and that's a... That's a natural-looking pearl. Again, a, a perfectly spherical, or even close to perfectly spherical pearl is really rare in nature. Mm -hmm. um, and so more often than not, you're going to see everything from like blobby, misshapen ones that, like you said, look like molars, ones that are like teardrop-shaped. There's a bunch of different cool shapes that, that you know, can be produced as, as natural pearls. And all of those are Baroque. Right. Um, it is n still kind of a rare thing to cultivate successfully or to culture successfully um, a pearl. They've gotten the process down pretty good, but uh, it takes about 10 to 18 months, and about half of the oysters even survive that nucleation process like you were talking about yeah. uh, because it's really just very, very precise and is very finicky. Uh, and of those half, only about 5% will end up producing a high-quality pearl. So yeah. when you're Pearl uh, culturing, I was about to say farming, I guess it's farming in a way. Mm -hmm. um, you are making most of your profit, uh, about 90% from those, that 5% of the 50% right. <laughs> that end up becoming high quality pearls. And you can still do some stuff with a non-high quality, but you're not going to get the, the big top dollar prices. And again, that's just from cultured pearls. Again, it just kind of reminds you how how really rare the really nice natural ones are. And you said that it takes 10 to 18 months. I saw in some cases they'll they'll give the pearl up to four years to develop. And while they're while they're cultivating or culturing the 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 oysters, the pearls in the oysters, um, they will scrub the oysters three times a year, protect them Aww. from predators and disease. These are mm -hmm. like the most well-cared-for oysters, which is great. But again, they've had some other foreign objects surgically implanted in them. And then when the pearl is taken out, I don't believe the, the oyster typically survives that process, which if you really stop and think about it, is is pretty mean. It's actually a really mean, torturous process. They're cared for while they're being raised, it's true, but they're killed to get the pearl out of them. They're just basically a, a machine to produce a pearl is how the pearl industry views oysters or other mollusks that, that produce pearls for it. Well, hopefully they become dinner and then nope. part of someone's driveway. They definitely do not they necessarily... They don't eat them? No, and uh, one of the... I think what Gaston Vivez actually might have come up with this technique if it's not older, but I think it's still in use in places. They'll harvest the oysters when it's pearl harvesting time, and just to make the process easier, they'll dump the oysters into huge piles, cover the piles so that things can't get to them, like predators or, or like vultures or whatever, um, and let the oysters rot. And then the pearls are just easier to retrieve after the, the fleshy part of the oyster is gone. Surely some of those dudes are eating oysters. Some of them are. And if you, how about this, Chuck? I've got a little, uh -huh. a little fact for you that's going to keep you off of oysters forever. Um, you, you don't. If it, you're eating a raw oyster, you're not eating a dead say. oyster. I know. Everyone knows that. It's a, oh really? I didn't realize that. 
Really? Yeah, no, I, I'd never really thought about it, but there's, there's, they're probably dead, but if they're dead, they're freshly dead. And they're so freshly dead, it's possible that they're not actually dead yet. So you might be eating them live when you eat them raw. I hadn't thought about that. It makes me sad. Yeah, I think they, once you, I mean, you've shucked oysters before. I have You know not. what that process, really? No, I, I have my oysters shucked for me. <laughs> well, part of the shucking process involves cutting it loose from its shell. Uh-huh. Uh, where it's attached, and I think that's that's that lifeline. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, hey, it's a, it's a renewable resource, but uh, PETA obviously is going to say, "Nah, making pearls is not something people do just because you're you're messing with an animal to get something from it." Yeah. So PETA's, of course, going to be against it. Sure. And there is like a moral question about it. it is morally questionable, but there are some real upsides to it. One is it gives another industry to. Um, to areas that might be subject to overfishing so that they don't have to overfish just to make money. They can raise oysters as well for pearls. Um, mm-hmm. The oysters definitely clean the water in the area that they filter out all sorts of impurities and problems. Um, so it actually does make the water cleaner. And um, as long as they're not messing with like the coral reefs or the local ecosystems to, to create these farms, they're doing it in a more sustainable manner. It actually is a fairly sustainable industry. It's just Again, mean to the oysters or other mollusks. Are you off oysters now? I don't know. You'll have to ask me when somebody presents me with a platter of them and some crackers <laughs> and and uh, mignonette. Mignonette? You got to order that stuff. Uh, you, you just randomly get presented with platters of oysters? Every, every it, what kind of them. life are you live in? At the country club <laughs> when I wear my string of molar pearls. Uh, should we go over kind of quickly a couple of these um, expensive – Famous pearls. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, if you want to talk about super expensive, super huge pearls, uh, there are a handful that, um, you know, sometimes they look like super large molars. Sometimes they look like, Livia described one as looking like a, a giant white brain. Mm-hmm. Um, they are, they're not very good looking, um, yet they can be really expensive just as prized collectibles, I think. Right. Um, it's not like, I don't think they've discovered a process where they can take a big, large brain looking oyster and break it down into, or a pearl and break it down into like 5,000 perfect little pearls, right? No, not that I I know of. No, it's more just like they prize it for its weirdness and rarity. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, well, I think the biggest one we could find is the 75 pound pearl of Puerto. And the thing is, is, whenever one of these comes out, everybody's like, that's so expensive. It's so valuable. That one was valued at $100 million. And it was um, found by a fisherman who kept it under his bed for a decade in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Now, all of a sudden, he's sitting on a $100 million pearl. Um, or I should say sleeping over one. Um, but it's never been sold. So no one right. knows if it actually is worth that. It's worth whatever yeah. somebody will pay for it, basically. Exactly. It's a very good point. But there is one called uh, La Peregrina, and it is arguably the most famous pearl in the world. It's an egg-shaped pearl. It's been um, fashioned into different necklaces and different jewelry. It's appeared in portraits of queens, including, I believe, Elizabeth I, and then a bunch of Spanish queens uh, over the years because it was part of the Spanish crown jewels. And then it finally made its way into a necklace that Richard Burton bought for Elizabeth Taylor in 1969, very famously. So that neat? Imagine wearing a piece of jewelry that you knew was in a portrait of a queen that was made hundreds, several hundred years ago, (laughs) and now you're wearing it too. Like, that's just cool. That's one thing I like about stuff like this, or like a pearl is something that can, you know, make its way through time and history from from person to person. 
Yeah, and part of Hollywood history. I mean, one of the great uh, off and on romances in Hollywood history. Mm -hmm. uh, some people would prize it just for that, from Richard Burton to uh, Elizabeth Taylor's neck. And uh, I think we should also mention at least the people like, come on, I don't care about giant molars and brain-looking things. Right. Guys, what is the biggest, like, pearl pearl? Mm -hmm. Like, the biggest really round, natural-looking pearl. Uh, and I think the biggest one they found is about, and it's pretty big if you think about a near-spherical pearl. Sure. Um, about 0.7 inches. Right. Um, and it's, it's big. It's 33 carats. If you know anything about diamonds, a 30, imagine a 33-carat diamond, but a pearl instead. And I think it sold for a million dollars in 2014, appropriately enough. A million buckaroos. Uh, yeah, you got anything else? I got nothing else. All right. Well, Chuck's got nothing else. I've got nothing else. And since I just said that out loud, that means it's time for listener mail. Uh, and I'm going to call this, doo -doo -doo -doo, which is usually your trumpet howl. Oh, would you like me uh, to do it? Yeah, please. Doo -doo -doo -doo. Oh, you went an octave higher. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Very impressive. Uh, the Stuff You Should Know 5K is all set and ready for another year. Yeah. Uh, if you're listening, you don't know what this is. The Stuff You Should Know Army on the Facebook page, they get together, they plan out a 5K race uh, slash walk. And it's just a very fun community event uh, that happens all over the world, I think. Uh, it's not like they all meet together in Kansas at Aaron Cooper's house <laughs> right. and run from his driveway to the nearest grocery store, which is at least 5K. <laughs> uh, they do this at the same time in the spirit of all being together. And the dates are October uh, 21st to October 31st. Mm -hmm. So it's a rolling race. Uh, it is, they took a vote online and the title of the race this year is the 2022 SY 5k is ready. Are you, <laughs> uh, in commemoration of the 10 year anniversary of the Camry ad that ran, it's probably <laughs> still running for all I know. It definitely is on some episodes somewhere. Um, there is an event page. If you want to find out more, they're getting all the details worked out still, but I wanted to drop this early. Uh, just go to the Stuff You Should Know Army Facebook page. Uh, do a little search for the 5K. They probably have something pinned. Uh, there is a, someone named, uh, a listener named Sarah Denny Whatmore, mm -hmm. who has suggested a costume element, if people are into that. Uh, and they're working out the prizes and things. And uh, it's all going. So if you're into community and exercise and being a part of something cool, go check it out. Uh, and this, of course, was an update from uh, Aaron Mizell. Aaron Mizell. Aaron, I don't know which way I've said it in the past, but... I'm saying Mazelle. Mazelle? It's probably just Mazelle. Aaron's great. She's been around forever. She was a movie crusher, too, and that was still a thing. Yeah. And she's a longtime member of the Stuff You Should Know Army and maybe even the chair of the Stuff You Should Know 5K. I'm not sure. She's Ooh. definitely up there. Um, and if you want to be like Aaron and let us know is something awesome happening, uh, we want to hear about it. You can send it to us in an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. 
Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.